Oh, no, look, I've got the, um, what's it? Uh, yeah, well, I, I was saying to somebody before, you can tell the difference in the generations because it's not a Britney to me, it's a Madonna. <laughs> Just going to get ready. Morning, everybody. Good, that's there. <sighs> it's always a good idea to calm down before you try and say anything, isn't it? Yeah. Good morning. This morning, this is the last in the really powerful series that we've been doing called Mythbusters, looking at the, the myths or the half-truths which are all around us in our culture, causing us to settle for things which are actually contrary to God's word, contrary to God's will for our lives. You know, he's our creator and lovingly formed us in our mother's womb. His truth is surely the safest, wisest place to live, isn't it? Rather than depending on the sh constantly shifting sands of how we feel or what the world says around us. No messing about today, just straight in there with that one. So this morning, I'm talking about the last one of, in the series, identity. Just a teeny topic there. Um, and I just want to start by saying, I don't know where you're at today with who you are, how happy you are, or not. But the first thing you need to know is that God loves you. Wherever you're at with your identity, God adores you utterly. Who am I? It's one of the most fundamental questions that human beings ask, isn't it? Probably every single human being has asked that question. Who am I? Usually closely followed by, why am I here? And of course, how you answer the first question affects what your answer is to the second one too, doesn't it? How we identify ourselves profoundly affects how we live, doesn't it? When I was preparing this talk, I was thinking about feral children. And this is actually the most pleasant picture I could find, because actually, most of those pictures are deeply, deeply disturbing, because those children are behaving in a way that is very unhuman, aren't they? But human children have been raised by animals, and they've learned to survive by taking their lead from the creatures around them. I read about children who'd been raised by gazelles, Bears, obviously, as we have here, leopards, wolves, monkeys, and all of those children moved, sounded, and ate much more like the creatures that they'd been raised with than the human parents that had given them birth. You know, it's possible to come to some very, very wrong conclusions about ourselves, like thinking that you're a leopard when you're actually a boy or thinking you're a human when you're actually a dog, like Hamish. <laughs> but it, it's a survival issue. Our identity is a survival issue, isn't it? You know, the process of discovering our identity and allowing that to shape how we live in some ways is lifelong, isn't it? Things are always changing around us and causing us to reevaluate who we are or who we think we are. For example, about to get personal here. Last time I was on stage, I had all of my female parts intact. I was a member of the senior leadership team, and I had two children living at home. This time, I've had all that whizzed out. <laughs> I'm not on the senior leadership team, 
And both my boys have left home. One of them has admittedly come back again, but it's a new phase in our relationship. There is a lot right there to challenge my concept of who I am, isn't there? And times of change can really highlight where we have rooted our identity, and they can be very difficult. So when we're looking at identity, there's all aspects of it, aren't there? Like objective things about us, how tall we are, where we were born, our biological parentage. There are subjective things about us, how funny we are, how good we are at playing a particular instrument, etc. There are things about our social identity, what economic background we're from, for example. There are things about our collective identity, groups we align with, like a political party or a denominational stream. Our jobs, our relationships and families, like Jen was talking about the other week, our age, our religion, our sex, our race, our nation, they all feed into our identity, don't they? Timothy Keller likens our identity to a pack of cards. I like that, it's good, isn't it? One pack with many faces, and we can actually decide which is our ace of spades. I think that's supposed to be an ace of spades, but it looks more like an ace of clubs to me, although the one at the top is a spade, so it's, it's got an identity crisis, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we live in a culture where, thanks to technological advances, huge, huge social change, there are more chances today to define ourselves than ever before, aren't there? There's an expectation as well to be able to decide who you are, to self-identify, like that chap that John mentioned a while ago, the Dutch man recently, who began a legal battle to self-identify as 49 when he was actually 69. You know, this brings a, real, a lot of freedom, brings a lot of creativity, a lot of opportunity and fulfillment, but it's also brought a lot of insecurity, a lot of confusion and sometimes intolerance and division as groups and individuals seek to firm up their sense of who they are by pointing out how different they are from everybody else rather than celebrating our common humanity. You know, everybody's attempting to find the most authentic and accurate source for how they define themselves, aren't they? And people are looking in a lot of different places you know, for us in the West, gone are the days where your family defined who you were. I feel a bit echoey, is it all right? Okay, good, that's fine, it's just me. So it's in this context that the myths that we're looking at today have grown up. You know, we're suggesting in this series that the truth of the Bible is the alternative to these myths. The truth which comes, I said at the start, from the one who made us who knows us better than we know ourselves and loves us enough to sacrifice everything to be with us in Jesus. His truth is that we are made in his image, deeply flawed, going our own way, rejecting that image in us, which the Bible calls sin, but so deeply loved that he died to forgive us and set us free so that we can walk with him all of our days and on into eternity. But not only this, 
But he's given us the Holy Spirit to actually help make these truths a reality in our lives and to walk with us through every part of that. As we walk in relationship with him, his truth becomes a reality. And I just really encourage you, Louise has already mentioned it, but listen to Chris's talk last week. It was such a powerful reminder of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, the truth of who we are in him. And because these truths are so often in conflict with how we feel, aren't they? We need to be reminded of the gospel regularly. The struggle for identity is real. So I'm just going to look at three myths this morning. Myth one, I'm always going to be this way. It's just who I am. Well, this myth can make us either defeatist or defiant. I'm stuck in this negative pattern. I'll never get out of it. Defeatist. You know, maybe struggling with anxiety or depression, maybe an addiction of some kind to pornography or starving yourself or shopping. Or maybe it's a characteristic of yours that you feel trapped by and you're thinking, I will never get out of it. You've become defeatist. Or flip side to that, a bit defiant, if you've got a problem with me, deal with it. It's just the way I am. There's quite a lot of that going around, isn't there? Almost the inference is, I can't help it. Maybe we're aware we can be abrasive, but we think that everyone's entitled to our opinion. Or maybe we enjoy being needed so much. Maybe we need to be needed so much that we refuse to slow down and say no growing worn out and even resentful, refusing to deal with our own neediness. That's a little bit of my, been my struggle over the years. But we can become defiant. I can't help it, it's just who I am. Well, the kernel of truth, of course, is that we do all have unique gifts and personalities which make us who we are and will be with us for life. Steve, for example, will always prefer to have seen a holiday destination in advance on Google Earth. I, on the other hand, will always prefer the element of surprise. <laughs> it's just, that is just who we are. But the better truth here is that we are being transformed from glory to glory into the likeness of Jesus as we follow him, irrespective of our personalities or current hurts, hang-ups, and habits, the Bible tells us that as, we grow, that as we follow him, we do grow in character and better reflect Jesus as we walk with him. And we who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is spirit. It's the Holy Spirit in us which enables us to be transformed by grace so that we display the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. These are from the Holy Spirit. And the habits and personality traits or characteristics, if they're in conflict with any of that, with the way of love, then it's time to allow him to transform us by submitting to him. You know, Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, Strength Finders, 
or any other ways that you've found to explain and define how you are, they are not an excuse for a lack of love, ever, are they? We don't have to be trapped in any of our ways because Jesus makes us our best selves. You know, the gospel and the power of our new identity in him is our power for change. We are saints, not sinners, like Chris said last week. You know, through him, habits can be broken, addictions uprooted, hurts healed, joy birthed, patience worked into our character. That's hard work, isn't it? (laughs) I'd love to stay here a bit longer, but I haven't got time for that. But just to say that God is our redeemer and our restorer. We don't need to be stuck in any of these ways. I'm always going to be this way. It's just who I am, busted. Myth number two, I am who my experiences say I am, or I can't be anything other than what I've experienced. Well, of course, the kernel of truth is that our experiences do teach and influence us, don't they? Of course they do. Excuse me. And again, this can be positive experiences. Maybe you always win. Maybe you always succeed. Therefore, I am a winner. Or worse, I must succeed. Or maybe you've always been liked, so you're just not equipped for rejection. You know, I was a good girl at school. That might surprise you. It probably won't. (laughs) I worked hard, and I did very well at school. I I wasn't always top of the class, but I was always in the top three or four. When I failed my driving test at 21, it was my first failure ever. That challenged my identity. It really did. You know, my experiences hadn't prepared me for failure, and my identity had become inadvertently attached to being successful. That first time was a real shock. Failure threatened my sense of security because success had become ingrained in my sense of who I was. You know, I mean, I still hate failure. Who doesn't? But now I know that the God of the universe is my dad and that he utterly adores me. And John 15, 15 tells me that I'm Christ's friend. So it's no big deal if I've muffed up. I am still beloved. Or maybe our experiences have been negative. Maybe we've experienced failure more often than not. Maybe we've been rejected or abused, and we've come to the conclusion that therefore we're unloved or worthless. Now, this is a flippant example, but as good as I was academically, I was bad athletically. (laughs) I was the exact opposite. I was one of those people that was always left last to get picked, which means you're not really picked, are you? They just have to lump you, (laughs) put up with you. (laughs) And there was one sports day when uh, I couldn't really do anything else, and nobody else wanted to do it, so I got put on the shot put team. (laughs) I really looked like a shot put. (laughs) I even messed that up because I walked out the front of the circle, so I was disqualified. Honestly, absolutely horrendous. Thankfully, now I know I'm part of God's family. Ephesians 2.19 tells me that. 
So however rubbish I am at rounders, I won't be left out. Just never pick me for your team, top tip. <laughs> I'll forgive you because it's true, I'm very bad. You know, for some of us, life has been really tough, hasn't it? Maybe we've had abuse, maybe we've had rejection, maybe we've been abandoned, maybe betrayed, maybe there has been failure, maybe there's been a lack of opportunity even, maybe there's been crime, maybe there's been violence, all of these things, maybe those things have been in our past. You know, and we've believed that these things define us. Well, the truth of the good news of Jesus is that, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come and the old has gone. The new is here. Isn't that a wonderful truth? Your identity is not your circumstances. I am who my experiences say I am. Busted. So for both of these myths, though, the antidote is the Bible's encouragement to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Romans 12, verse 2, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Receiving freedom to change and being set free from our unhelpful traits or past experiences, it is easier said than done, isn't it? It's a process. It takes time. But with God, all things are possible. If you have struggles where you, you just are struggling to believe that what I'm saying is true for you this morning, get some help. Walk alongside with somebody who can encourage you and continue to speak truth. Get prayer. Get freedom. What, this is the inheritance we have in Jesus. So our last and biggest myth, I can be whoever or whatever I choose to be. I think this one is the most prevalent and sneaky of all. It's one I was raised with. I'm a little bit old for it, typically. It usually afflicts generations just following me uh, a, a bit more than me. But I was ahead of the curve because my dad was American. And this myth came from America. It totally did. Um, in some ways, this myth feels freeing, empowering, exciting, doesn't it? But I found it to be a tyrant and a burdensome fibber. The pressure to be something marvelous, which was inferred in the way my dad always said this, was just a recipe for a feeling of inadequacy and self-doubt. Because the kernel of truth is that we do have some choice. <laughs> Weird. Um, we do have choice over some aspects of our identity, don't we? The deck of cards that we spoke about earlier, you know, we can decide which cards are on top, which is our ace of spades or clubs, as it were. We've just acknowledged too, haven't we, that we don't need to be defined by our experiences or current habits and characteristics. We can choose to let go of these or grow in our character. We can, we can also work hard and apply ourselves to learn new things. We also don't need to be who other people say we are. Part of the reason my dad drummed this myth into me is because it's the opposite of what his dad drummed into him, which was, you will never amount to anything. 
That was a lie that my dad spent his whole life trying to escape from by refusing limits, refusing weakness, and becoming a workaholic. You know, this myth of being whatever you want for him was preferable to the lie he was raised with, I guess. We'd all recognize, however, that this can't be completely true, wouldn't we? No matter how hard I train and no matter how much I want it, which I don't, I will never beat Usain Bolt in the 100 meters. It's just never going to happen. Getting me to run passes as entertainment in our house because I do the mum run thing. <laughs> so it's never going to happen. Equally, I will never look good in yellow, no matter how much I love the colour. <laughs> Steve will never be a ballet dancer. It was his childhood ambition, but it's never going to happen because he can't bend in the middle. He does look good in tights, though. He's got a nice pair of legs. Oh, so I should say, he doesn't wear tights, but he does wear running lycra, and it looks very good on him. <laughs> oh, dear. So we, we know on some level that it's not true, don't we? But what are some of the problems with this myth? Well, I just want to pull out a couple of things. So if your identity is all coming from you, how do you decide who to be? Do you define yourself by your romantic relationship or your job? La La Land was a bit of a shocking film in the last few years because normally in Hollywood, the romantic relationship wins, but in La La Land, it was the career that won, wasn't it? She went for the job, not the man. Wow. But she defined herself by her career. Do you define yourself by what you think you are when you're 15 or when you're 40? Completely different, aren't they? Do you define yourself by your sexuality or by your chief ability? Don't know. Do you define yourself by feelings that you have frequently or only occasionally if those seem somehow more noble? Confusion and instability can totally reign, can't they? Being named and defined by the one who made us brings a cohesion, a consistency to all of the disparate parts of us, all of the cards in the pack, because he doesn't change. And how he thinks of us and feels about us doesn't change. We're secure and we can experience that security in our identity. Also, Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we were created by him to do his works, which he's prepared in advance for us to do. Discovering who God made us to be and allowing him to equip us for that purpose is the most fulfilling way to live. Trying to be an Olympic runner when you're actually designed to walk alongside your brothers and sisters like I am is a recipe for stress for disappointment and impoverishment for the world around you. Because if you're not being you, nobody else is going to be you. And he has a plan for you. And it's a good one that suits you. The world depends on us being who God made us to be. That is how the kingdom comes. 1 Corinthians 12 says that we are one body and many parts, doesn't it? 
There is no pressure in that to be an eye when you're actually designed to be an ear, or a knee when you're supposed to be an elbow. You don't have to be anything that you're not. Just be what God has made you to be. There's also no pressure to be the best, because that passage says very, very clearly that all are esteemed, all are needed. The biblical view is that our identity is something that we receive rather than something we achieve. We receive our identity from God rather than achieve it through our own efforts and choices. So if you can be whoever you choose, another problem with this, what do you do with the bits that you can't choose? Starving myself in my late teens and early 20s showed me that I will never have slender calves and ankles. Now, you might look at me today and say, what's she chatting about? I, I get that quite a lot. But I have to tell you, these shoes have got two pairs of insoles in them because I have to buy sizes up from my actual foot size just so that I can zip them up. <laughs> now, you might not think that's a big deal, but when you're 19 and working on the wards, as I was at the time, I was wearing a dress, because that was in the days when nurses had starched aprons and dresses, and you're walking up and down wards all day, and blokes are telling you exactly what they think of your physique all day, it was a bit of an issue. You know, my path to freedom was accepting what was. I'm never going to have slender calves and ankles. Learning, though, to allow other things to define me, not conformed to modern beauty myths, but made in God's image and recklessly loved. You know, for some of us, gender is the focus for our identity tussles. There can be a really deep and painful struggle to integrate this part of our identity into who we are. And our prevailing culture has got so much to say on that, hasn't it? But I think of the example of Sam Albury, who as a Christian who experiences same sexual attraction, has found the love of the Father, the sacrifice of Jesus, and the intimate fellowship of the Holy Spirit to be anchors for him in his search for identity. He's found the Bible to be a powerful source of truth to answer his questions about himself. And I've included um, on the app some links if this is something that you're thinking about, either for yourself or for friends around you. Or we have some amazing experienced people in Frontline to talk with about these things. So chat to me at the end or email Hebe, her email address is on the app, if you'd like to talk with somebody about that. If I could have the band back up, that'd be fab. Finally, in this Mythbusters series, you know, we've tried to debunk some of the half-truths that we're surrounded by to equip us to live wisely in the world today so that we can be free to be loved by God and follow him in obedience, living free and glorifying him. You know, just want to say again, listen to Chris's talk last week to renew your hope in the gospel and the power of the identity that we have in him. It's amazing. You know, God wants us and has called us to be a beacon of hope in a confused and broken and broken-hearted world. Resolving our identity and who we are is crucial for the world today. 
I just want to finish with these verses, with this story from Jesus. When Jesus came to the region of, the region of Caesarea Philippi, I've tried this so many times, and I just, it's like Helty Kelty. I just can't, Helter Skelter. I can't say it. Anyway, that place, when he came there, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Well, it's just as well that Jesus didn't get his sense of identity from what other people thought of him, isn't it? He'd have been a bit confused. But what about you, Jesus said? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Who do you say I am? Jesus asked his disciples. You know, who we think we are can only really be answered when we've first decided who Jesus is. He's the one who truly knows who we are. He's the one who defines us. The thing is about that revelation, you'll see in that passage, it wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, Jesus said, but by my Father in heaven. That insight on who Jesus is and therefore who we are comes from the Father in heaven. It comes through revelation. If we are to make God and who he says we are, our ace of spades, if you like, then we need that revelation. You know, and sometimes that comes in a moment, doesn't it? But more often it comes over time as we worship him, as we spend time reading the Bible and meditating on his words, allowing ourselves to connect emotionally with him and with his vision of who we are, letting his truth heal our hearts and renew our minds. And as I said, you know, sometimes we need help in that process. But my prayer for all of us today and I can pray this in faith because the Bible tells me that this is the very work of the Holy Spirit, the reason he was sent, is that we receive that revelation of who Jesus is in a fresh way today so that we can also receive a fresh revelation of who we are and by faith live for him in love and truth. You know, Scripture says, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. The quest for true identity is also the quest for freedom, isn't it? As Soren Kierkegaard said, with God's help, I am becoming myself. Amen. Would you like to stand? We can now worship together.